Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Petey Wheatstraw, Smokey, and the Bandit drive through 1977. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani. You might know me, though, of course, from my CB radio handle of Commodore 64. Roger that. Breaker Breaker 19. Nice, nice, nice. And I am Adam Thomas, and you might know me from ICB Breaker Handle, Big Fat Slab of Bacon. 69. Well, actually, my true CB handle is light, Lightsaber 6969. Right. Of course. Yeah. As, it, yeah. as it should be for anybody. Uh, but welcome, everybody, to the Double Edge Double Bill, where every week uh, Adam and I cover a double feature randomly selected at the end of the previous episode related to a topic. And uh, this was a topic chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash dedbpod, where we put it up to them about, like, oh, let's cover something 70s related. And uh, it was a case of uh, 70s period pieces versus the ultimate winner, which was the specific year 1977 in film. And uh, it's an interesting year for film, I think mostly dominated by one movie being in the zeitgeist and just really popular and everyone just was really attention grabby for it. The Goodbye Girl. Yeah, for sure. Right, because now everybody has like all the spin-offs of Goodbye Girl. We just saw the book of Richard Dreyfus on Disney Plus and everything, and you know, it's just it's a big franchise. Yeah, everybody loves it. Everybody loves it. Change filmmaking forever. Of course, we're being uh, sarcastic. The obvious big movie that came out around that summer was Star Wars, which, uh, for perspective, this is the top five box office movies of 1977. You got Star Wars at $221 million in $77, so that's like a billion. Honestly, if you compare, like, do everything later. Um, and the number two is one of the movies we're covering, Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, then Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Saturday Night Fever, and The Goodbye Girl. Which, if nothing else, that's a very diverse list of top five movies. One you wouldn't get today. Of like, oh, hey, here's two sci-fi movies, but also a comedy about a, like, bandit who steals beer. Um, a dance movie that's very dark. And The Goodbye Girl, which is like a sweet rom-com movie about, like, Richard Dreyfus and a single mother, like, getting together. And that made, like, $82 million <laughs> in 77 months. <laughs> Yeah, that ain't happening now, buddy. If James Cameron or Disney ain't behind it, yeah, you're fucked. Well, that's the secret, is the Avatar sequels are actually going to be, like, quiet character pieces. Starring Richard Dreyfuss. I hope not. In a similar vein, we should probably also mention that, like, at the Academy Awards, uh, the Best Picture nominees were, along with Star Wars and The Goodbye Girl, uh, Julia, The Turning Point, and the winner uh, was Annie Hall, which also won a few other awards, uh, including for its uh, director, Woody Allen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's fucking yeah. Great. Great. Well, I mean, to be fair, look, great. no one knew about the horrible things he's been alleged of at that time, and so they naturally stopped nominating him in 2013. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Just like Robert Polanski and, and all those other people. Yep. Hey, they stopped like, in like 2003. Oh, that was like a 10 years <laughs> with Polanski. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, but it took like 40 for it to happen, so fuck that guy. 
you know. Eh. Well, look, we we can all. That's a whole different conversation. Fuck those guys. We're all very firmly in that way. But mm-hmm. um, with the best picture nominees, it's just notable that I was just trying to like find some of these nominees, just like to stream potentially. The Turning Point, Julia, and The Goodbye Girl, not available to stream or rent anywhere. Wonder why? Got to be what rights issues, probably. I mean, probably rights issues, probably lack of interest. It's weird how, like, um, movies that were, like, at that pinnacle, just most of them don't even matter at this point, as opposed to, like, a Star Wars or even, you know, an Annie Hall is still in circulation, despite, obviously, who that money's going to, partially. What do you think separates, like, 1977 in that era in general in film compared to, like, now? Well, you know, just just to speak on the year itself, I mean, looking at it, you know, when I was doing sort of research of what films to pick for the show and then also for our segment at the end and things like that. It was a huge genre heavy year. I mean, there was a lot of genre films, be it horror or, you know, weird martial arts movies with Chuck Norris or just, just a really odd year for movies. You don't get a year where it's like, like we already mentioned, where it's just the, the craziest amount of movies that hit the theaters and are successful that are just all over the map as far as, you know, the genre of it. And also just so many classics came out of this year that, you know, people might not even realize all came out the same year. Like if you'd have told me Star Wars and Suspiria and, you know, one of the movies we're talking about tonight, but then Breaker Breaker and The Incredible Melting Man all came out the same year, I'd be like, I gotta maybe look into that. But nope, sure shit, there they are. It's just such a wild year. Yeah, I mean, and, and just the fact that it's, it's like you mentioned, like such a variety in what is successful is crazy. Not even just specifically genre things. Like I, I rewatched Saturday Night Fever as part of prep for this. And it's such a fascinating movie that like was so successful that because it's like a very disturbed R-rated movie, but became so famous for its dance sequences, they released like a PG rated version of that with like all of the language and horrible implications cut out and just John Travolta dancing for the most part. That's like, that's how successful that movie was that we had to completely rebrand it for like the Grease audience by like the next year. <laughs> it feels like almost like a weird turning point for a film to where you still had, like you said, the John Travolta dance movies and you still had like these comedies and, and like, the, like the one we're talking about tonight. And then you still had sort of the last real big push at the time of the disaster movies with like Airport 77 and things like that. But then you had like, like I said, the Chuck Norris of it all starting to come in and religious themed horror movies but then you asked all animal attack horror movies because you had like day of the animals and orca and all these other ones it was just such a changing of the guard that it's one of those years that's undefinable by what was going on at the time uh maybe in you know america or society and stuff but it just almost feels like this was maybe the beginning to lead us into what the 80s ultimately were with like a lot of real sci-fi heavy genre films and and things like that and there's so many movies that came out this year that would have filmed right at place in canon's filmography as well it's just such a crazy exciting year well i mean down to obviously the big one with star wars being what it was like that along with jaws prior like were the two big examples of like the blockbuster culture really cementing itself in popular culture like those two movies are really what would give you like most of what would happen later like you mentioned a couple movies that were like arguably influenced by like say day of the animals is like partially influenced by like a jaws being as big as it is or even like some of the other horror movies like we're still in the wake of like the exorcist and stuff like that like there there still is like so much more of like i guess a, a pop cultural saturation like I mean, it was weird watching like i, I watched the goodbye girl 
recently, I rented at my local library, and in that movie, they referenced just, like, the little girl, who's, like, one of the main characters' references. Have you, did you see The Exorcist? It feels like it's, like, such an early example where I know, like, films have been referenced in other films previously to this. But it just feels like, oh, we're starting to get to the point where, like, pop culture is at the saturation point. And now after this year, it's going to be a lot of, like, referencing Star Wars to some degree and whatever. Like, it's it's at a time also where it feels like, oh, there's a pop culture, like, water cooler effect that just isn't the same as it is anymore at this point. Where everyone is so disparate with, like, oh, have you watched this thing on Paramount Plus or HBO Max or Hulu? Like, there was a monoculture at this time where it's just, like, everyone saw, like, these five movies or whatever the hell that were, like, so ubiquitous because there just wasn't a lot of other options, Despite the amount of, like, variety, everyone still went to, like, these big movies, which in this case still had more variety than we get. Yeah, that's interesting that you brought that up, where it almost Hollywood became self-referential on itself and the pop culture zeitgeist. I think that's a very good way to put it. And uh, obviously, yeah, Star Wars really was, you know, one of the first major birthing points of that movement as far as, you know, pop culture and just saturation of the market as far as merchandise and everything like that. But then, yeah, I didn't even think of it that way, and that just shows how uh, uh, committed I am to the <laughs> research. But really, like, uh, yeah, it, it is sort of the birth of the modern blockbuster happened this year. And that's why even when we were t- discussing what years to do, without even thinking of it in that way, that's why 77 was like the year I glommed onto. Because I just, in hi- history and, and being a film fan and stuff, it's just one of those years that always stick out in conversations where it's like, can you believe not only did we get Star Wars and Jaws and all that around then, but there's also, you know, the horrible sequel to The Exorcist that basically killed that franchise for a minute. And then you also got sort of, you know, these really weird you know, Giallo films, it's so such a fucking great year. Well, we'll be talking about two specific films from that year. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be doing uh, first the good pick that Adam had, which was Smoking the Bandit, one of the more successful films of that year. And then the bad pick that I had, which is uh, not nearly as successful a film financially, but so successful in other oh, areas, yeah. P.D. Wheatstraw, which we'll get all into uh, after we talk about Smokey and the Bandit. At last, a warm, sensitive, touching story about the close personal relationship between a man and a woman, between a trucker and his dog, between a father and his son. No way that you could come from my loins. And how they all took to the road one day for a quiet little drive in the country. From Georgia to Texas and back in 28 hours flat with a truckload of bootleg beer. I'll be driving this one. Hey, uh, blocker, blocker. You'll be driving the truck. This is Bandit 1 and that is uh, Bandit 2. <laughs> now, who would do a thing like that? <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit, proving once and for all, it's not where you're going to count, it's who the hell's in back of you. He's Smoking the Bandit came out uh, July 29th, 1977, and it being, like I said, the number two highest grossing movie of that year is kind of a miracle. It's it's a huge, steep drop from Star Wars, but it was very successful to the point where there's also a weird thing where this movie had sequels, and I realized the Smoking the Bandit 2 and 3 
came out like within the same summers of Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, 80 AD and 83. So for every year there's a Star Wars movie in like oh. the the twenty in that era, there's also a Smokey and the Bandit movie to accompany it. They were trying to compete with that smoky money. You know, a, a mutual thing. Like, you know what? Everyone has to have a smoky movie and a Star Wars movie within the same summer. It's a shame, though, that we didn't get all, like, the legacy sequels. Like, where's The Convoy Awakens? We never got that. Oh, God, could you imagine? Good Lord. <laughs> it's true. The course, Jackie Gleason, all of it. It all happened, kid. Of course, for some reason, it's Harrison Ford <laughs> pointing, pointing at people. He's bounding down, loaded up and trucking. You get in that goddamn Trans Am, and you go find my wife. <laughs> uh, yes, but uh, obviously this film does not star Harrison Ford, but it stars Mr. Burt Reynolds as at least half of this title, the titular The Bandit. Uh, basically, if you're unaware of this movie, it's, it's sort of a weird example of, like, this was a movie I had not seen for a while until actually we did an episode about Burt Reynolds around the time of his passing, and that was the first time I'd ever seen it. But if you're unaware, basically, it's a very simple plot where the bandit is this uh, guy who is usually a Mack truck driver, but he's out of work from actually driving, but is famous enough to where he's, like, got an autograph booth at, like, a car show, and yeah. uh, Big Enos... And his uh, son, who's played by Paul Williams, basically say, hey, you know, what? I want to get a big celebration for when uh, my driver wins at this race. So I want you to get a huge shipment of cores from all the way in uh, it's Texarkana, right? As the song portrays it all the way to Texarkana, Arkansas, and then yeah, come yeah. back. That amber gold that is Coors. <laughs> yeah. When, when I saw this originally, I was like, this is all about Coors? Yep. That's what this Hell was, it was yeah. about, like, money or some shit? It's about <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I, I, I guess, but uh, but anyway, so he has to do that within, I believe it's 28 hours, is the whole thing, which is like, nobody could possibly do that, but the bandit can. The bandit is that skilled at it, and uh, en route, he picks up um, Carrie, played by Sally Fielder, as she is known as Frog throughout most of the movie, who is literally in a wedding dress uh, when, you know, the bandit picks her up and drives off... Uh, and he is then pursued by Smokey, who is a Buford T. Justice, who um, is the sheriff whose son was supposed to marry uh, Carrie, but she ran off from the altar. So it's a you know cross-state uh, chase between all of them, and there's a lot of stuff about convoys and CB radios, which there's obviously, I think, a huge amount of our listening audience who has no idea what the fuck that is, and it's such a weird cultural artifact to explain to people. <laughs> <laughs> what CB radios oh, are? Oh yeah, dude. Like, let's put it this way: my my brother is uh, he's like three and a half years older than I am. And when he was sixteen and got his first car, he got a CB radio put in it, and that was like the last dying thing of it. And even then, it was like, why are you getting a CB radio? But it's just because it, it was cheap, and you could get on there and like mess with truckers and stuff. So CBs have been like out of sort of the public eye for going on 30 plus years. If anybody knows it now, they probably know it from fucking Joyride. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like good candy cane. The only reason I'm at all aware of it is because I'm aware of the Convoy song, which was this weird like uh, 70s novelty hit from a guy named C.W. McCall that basically it's a song that's like, Breaker, Breaker, we got ourselves a Convoy. And the Convoy is like a huge group of cars that are like traveling at once, specifically like the trucks. Because all the CB radios were like truckers talking to each other, kind of like avoiding certain things. Because at that time you had like Blue Laws 
still and stuff about like people trying to actually transport like this movie is doing across state lines with like beer and stuff like that you couldn't do that which is like an ancient history thing as well this is such a weird like movie that could only happen at this period because like convoy was a popular song in 75 and this movie comes out in 77 it's such a big hit and there are other movies around this time like citizen band and breaker breaker starring chuck norris and of course um the film based on convoy the song which was directed by sam peckinpah of straw dogs fame of, of straw dogs fame, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the wild bunch, the most violent, and it's like oh, his yeah. most commercially successful movie he ever made because it came out like at that right exact time to make a convoy movie. It, it's so weird, and yeah, this movie is probably the most famous lingering thing about it because even though I hadn't seen this movie until a couple of years ago, smoking in the band is something I've been aware of culturally as a zeitgeist thing. I think mainly because sure. Burt Reynolds is a very popular figure in Florida. Trivia: My grandmother went to high school with Burt Reynolds. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Burt Reynolds in high school. I can imagine how much of a prick he probably was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she said he was a very nice boy, though I'm sure she was just very charmed by his rugged good looks. Of course she was. Of course she was. I would be. true. <laughs> <laughs> I look at him at Boogie Nights, I'm like, oh, you old, dirty snack. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure even even in high school, like, when you had, like, the wispy mustache a teenager would have, it probably looked immaculate, like, the best Oh, it was gorgeous. <laughs> oh, it was perfect. You know it was. That little rat fuzz. Oh, sure. <laughs> Just dark, coiled on his lip. Oh. This was your pick, Adam, so please, why don't you uh, go ahead and uh, talk about why you picked this and, you know, how, how you feel about Smokey and the Bandit. I picked it basically on the same reasons you already mentioned. It's been in the cultural and sort of, you know, I've known about it forever since I was a kid, since, you know, whatever. I've seen clips of it. Like there's the famous outtakes from it that are all over the place, even showed up in the outtakes for a different movie. I want to say it was Anchorman or something like that. Uh, It's just, it's kind of always been around and even the music and all that stuff but I've never seen it in its entirety. So I was like, well, here's a good opportunity. And it is such a well-known movie. Like if you say Smokey and the Bandit to people, they, they really much know, well, of a certain age, but they know what you're talking about. So I was like, all right, here's my opportunity to watch it. So I like it. I think it's fun. I think it's, it's pretty entertaining. I just think the, the story is so simple that it wears on after a while. It sort of just becomes the same shtick over and over and over. And the movie is only an hour and 40 minutes, but they could have easily cut 20 out of it and it would have been fine. Um, so it, for me, it, it sort of tends to lag a little bit near the end where it's just like, okay, just get to the fucking festival or whatever you're going to do. Like, I got it. You keep out running cops and you keep getting these people that, you know, idolize you to help you the whole movie. Like I, I, I it gets a little old. Yeah. Um, when I'd seen this before, I kind of mentioned this when we did our picking, I said I wasn't a huge fan of it when I first saw it, and I still have very similar feelings, which is to say I don't think it's, like, terrible or anything like that. It, it's such a weird style where, like, this is directed by Hal Needham. This is his first, like, feature film, but he had been in the business for at least, like, 20 years prior as a stuntman. And he was very much friends with Burt Reynolds. Apparently a lot of, like, the Brad pitt Leonardo DiCaprio relationship from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is based on their friendship. And you can see at least there's like an infectious mood to the movie in terms of like, well, I'm sure everyone had a lot of fun making this. I just don't know if I had a lot of fun watching it necessarily. 
Except for like the scenes where it feels like dynamite and perfect is all the stuff where it's Burt Reynolds and Sally Field after she gets picked up in like that Trans Am. All that stuff is like fucking gold. And I would just want to live in that car with those two people because they are so fun together. And much of it was improvised because they hated the script, which I could kind of see based on some of the other material around this, them in this fucking movie. Um, and obviously a lot of that comes from the natural chemistry they had because they were dating at this time. And uh, they clearly have like an actual like romantic chemistry that's kind of kindling there. But also, they're very funny together. All this stuff about like, oh, let me guess, are you a bride in search of a wedding? No, there's a wedding in search of a bride. Get me out of here. And she's like, that's very quick and it's very just well done and even some of the physical comedy like when she's driving and he's like okay we're gonna transfer each other over and they like she has to like get underneath her and it's like no this isn't working this is working they're about to like get hit by that one car that stuff's tremendous but i don't really give a shit about anybody else around them quite frankly i completely agree um i think burt reynolds and sally field are absolutely dynamite together i, I think they do have a lot of fun chemistry a lot of good back and forth and like you said uh, you know where she's you know god now i think i'm in love with your belt buckle you know what i mean that type of stuff <laughs> it, it's really fun it's really cute uh i i don't uh, jackie gleason is just way too much for me he's way too over the top and it's agree. jackie gleason like from stuff i've seen which mostly is from like honestly his later career like around like from this point onward but even like stuff from like the old honeymooner show or whatever he's like the epitome to me of like a tv sitcom like early sitcom star where they have a specific shtick and like this it's a bit different from like like earlier film comedians like Abbott and Costello or even like the Three Stooges, people like that, where like they have a shtick, but they've honed it so well in film that it works, as opposed to all this shit just feels like any of the stuff with him and his son just feels so much like, oh, this is like this would fit really well in like a thirty minute episode of a TV show where there's like maybe two or three scenes of it, as opposed to it being like the other half of the movie. It just, that stuff got immediately old to me. I don't think I ever laughed once at his shit. It felt like a, too much of an over-the-top foil for the really cool and laid-back bandit. Like, it's too much. It's way too over-the-top. And then, like, his buddy, Snowman, I, I forget his real name in the movie. Well, I mean, he's played um, by Jerry Reed, who wrote the Eastbound and Down song that we hear constantly. Yeah, in this movie. Je yes. and Jerry Reed, I, he's okay. Uh, but I don't care about anything going on with him either, like him with the dog and him in the bar and all that. Like, it just doesn't, it does nothing for me, like truly. And most, most people nowadays would know Jerry Reed from like the water boy. He was the coach. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I like the stuff where it's him and, you know, Burt Reynolds. I think Burt Reynolds gets the best out of him early on when he tries to like get him to actually come along. Like when he just arrives unannounced at the house and Jerry Reed's trying to sleep and he's just like, Hey buddy. I'm going to get on the bed here and just tell you, like, oh, we need to go on a big trip. You're going to help me out. It's going to be great. Just like, well, I want to bring my dog. It's like, okay, whatever. And then when they go get over to Texarkana and they get, like, the cores out, he's just like, you can't drive a forklift. I can fork whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> and he just, uh -huh. like, drives around with it. That stuff's fun. But, yeah, the moment he's just in the fucking truck with his dog, like, I don't care. I, yeah, I, don't I, care. I no interest in any of this. Yeah, like, I that's the care. stuff I agree with you that I think you could really cut down even further. Or at least... I think fold it more into like the other element I kind of like about this is the CB radio culture stuff where it's about yes, the fact I like agree. whenever they tune into other people, it's like random. Like there's some like hick guy who's like big, but also like a little old lady and then a bunch of like uh, teens who are just hanging out and shit like yep. a brothel on wheels. That stuff's really fun. Like the really crazy characters and all that. It's just, 
when that's really all you got is that Burt Reynolds and Sally Field to sort of hold your attention, it becomes a little much after a while because it's just the same stick over and over and over. If the rest of the characters or the rest of the stuff happening was interesting, then it would be fine. Well, I mean, there's also another element I think we're, we're not displaying and I think fits into Hal Needham's, you know, history as a stuntman. The car stunts in this movie are very good. Like, oh, they're badass. Yeah, 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 yeah. But honestly, while I was watching it the whole time, like, well, you know, there's certain elements I really like and other things that frustrate me. But I feel like I've liked this in a previous context, or at least one that came after this and it hit me. Blues Brothers took a lot of the stuff from this movie and just perfected it for me. Yeah, that's no, that's very accurate. Yeah. Especially with like the foil there being like one, it is John Candy, but he's not like constantly throughout the movie. You have other like the side characters they meet, obviously like the famous musicians and stuff. But even John Candy is so much funnier to me reacting off these Blues Brothers weird characters where he's just like an asshole confident cop. He's like, no, I can do this. We're going to get this. But he likes their music. You know? Right. He likes but their music. And sh- right. Yeah. 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 Like that. Or even the other two, the two deputies, like the, the yep, two guys, like, I forgot their names, but, yeah, but they're, they're also great because they're perfect straight men. To like yep. react off of these weird dudes who just show up and have a yeah. an air of mystery about them. That's a very good sort of comparison. Uh, yeah, you got John Candy, you got the deputies who are the straight men going after these guys, and then you got the Blues Brothers who are just kind of maniacs. But then you also have two groups of just buffoons going after them at the same time too. You got the the old country musicians. Yeah, Charles Napier, you're right. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yep. And then you got the white supremacists, and then all so Carrie Fisher shows up and all this crazy shit. But it just keeps escalating. That's why Blues Brothers work so well. It's just escalation constantly. This kind of finds its note and then stays with it the whole movie. 100%. Yeah, that's really what it is. It's just like it's at a certain level, which I think can be kind of fun because there's a bit of like a laid back, just chill hangout vibe to this movie that I appreciate, like in contrast to the wild wackiness of a Blues Brothers. But at the same time, like I agree that if this was even shorter than its pretty short length at this point, I think it would be even more tight and better and just like really, really work in a way that I would want to see, you know, from one of these movies. Because like I, there, there's fun sequences even with just like people driving. Like when they do have the convoy actually show up, just like oh we got a convoy going, and we see the car like just kind of like balletically going around together. There's a fun and charm to that. Or even like I mentioned, with the the probably my favorite car stunt in the whole movie is when Buford's car goes underneath that one like truck that's like coming through and like the top of it falls off. Such a good stunt. It's like there's an actual person that like pops out there. That's probably not fucking Jackie Gleason, obviously. But like just the the fact that you see like an actual stunt man shows that like Needham is so interested in like showing like no, this is a real stunt that we fucking did and we actually destroyed this car. And, like, that's so fun. I just wish it wasn't deflated by fucking Jackie Gleason being like, oh, I hate my boy. I'm going to beat you in the head. And that's, like, the, the, the shtick. Yeah. Constantly calling his son an idiot and constantly yelling at the other cops and constantly, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like you said, if this movie's a little bit shorter or maybe just a different character than Jackie Gleason or anything, it, it, I'd argue it would have worked a lot, lot more. This movie has the tendency the sort of bones in it to be a super fun, like you said, chill chase road movie. And it's just, you, you ultimately kind of end up not caring. Well, it it also, this kind of reminds me of, are you aware of the weird thing with the third Smokey and the bandit? Isn't it like a different actor or something like that? Okay. Wait, it's even better. Okay. So in the second movie, apparently it's just like a straight up what you'd imagine a comedy sequel would be, whatever. And Sally Field and Burt Reynolds came back and they were like, okay, we're not doing this again. 
And then for the third movie, they originally had the like thing where they shot it and they test screened it and turned out terribly with people. So they had to reshoot a bunch of stuff. But it was going to be Jackie Gleason played both Smokey and the bandit. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, and then they had to reshoot all of it, and I believe it's like Jerry Reed comes back and plays, like, not the snowman, but, like, a different bandit character who's, like, taking on the reins or whatever. But, like, as much as we both agree we don't like Jackie Gleason in this movie, I would be fascinated to watch that train wreck of an original cut. (laughs) It's just like, wait, both of them? (laughs) And he's like, there's still shots of, like, Jackie Gleason dressed up like Burt Reynolds as the bandit. I gotta see this. I mean, it's it's been, like, lost to time for the most part, except for, like, a couple production stills. But I'm like, I would be compelled to see this very baffling idea. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I got, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that uh, it almost made you do the Burt Reynolds laugh there. Yeah, which, by the way, he's got, like, nine different laughs. but i mean but we should talk about that more obviously because that's what was so influential about this movie like burt reynolds was like a famous actor before this point but this cemented his sort of image people know him from with this movie and i think it's just because that dude had so much charisma despite the fact that he made it look effortless that was always the charm really was just he was doing this like big elaborate you know movie where it's like he's talking about fourth with Sally Field he's supposed to be playing like a badass dude who drives this car like across state lines and is being chased by the police and he doesn't give a single fuck and that's infectious and to the point where he's constantly saying how fun it is and I, and how much he just loves being the bandit and it, it's yeah he's he absolutely carries this movie I mean a hundred percent I'd argue that even with all the faults we've already given it if you took away Burt Reynolds, none of this movie would work. I don't know, but if you replace him with Jackie Gleason, it might be perfect. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, we can all wish. We can all wish and hope. Yeah. Release release the Smokey is the bandit cut. Yeah, I want to see that. Before we get out of here, Adam, does this movie sort of define this particular era for you where it just feels like so out of like our consciousness since we were both born well after this movie came out like this just feel like an interesting artifact to find or what do you think is like the interest for people to maybe watch it well first of all i was only born six years after this movie came out so centuries (laughs) (laughs) millennia long time ago it fits perfectly for the era it's from, particularly the year it's from. I think people who are into like movies of the 70s or maybe even Burt Reynolds as an icon or something like that, this would be a really cool sort of discovery for them if they haven't seen it, which I'd be really surprised if you like Burt Reynolds or you haven't seen Smoking the Bandit. But for nowadays viewers, like people maybe a little bit younger than you or you know stuff like that, I just don't see them getting really enjoyment out of this. I, I really don't. I think it's a it's a perfectly fun little 70s nostalgia movie, but if you're that far removed from it, I don't see people getting the enjoyment out of it. Yeah, I think I would have a similar comparison to, I mentioned Saturday Night Fever earlier. Both those movies, I think I would recommend to anybody who's curious about like film as like a snapshot of a time, basically, or at least like a cultural depiction of a time. With this, with like CB radio, how much romance is it versus also disco for like Saturday Night Fever and that version of it, at least obviously with, uh, precariously, a lot more white people than were actually at disco clubs before that point. But, like, they're both movies I have, like, huge, massive problems with, and I don't love, but at the same time, there are moments 
where you can totally see, like, oh, that's why this is referenced everywhere. Yeah. yeah. There are pure moments where it's just like, oh, no, this is actually very cinematic and fascinating and great. In this case, it's a lot of the stuff with, like, even as much as we kind of clowned on Jerry Reed, I kind of love that Eastbound and Down song. It's great. And it's definitely one of those songs to where, like, I guarantee you a lot of people have heard it not knowing what it's from. Right, I heard this song long before I really knew what this movie sure. was, for sure. Yes, sure. and I'll, I'll, I also love the fact that Jerry Reed apparently wrote this in, like, an afternoon and offered to be like, I don't know, it's an early version, Hal. I don't think you'll, I don't know if you'll like it. And I was just like, no, this is as it is, and we're using it. And God bless him. It's like, it's such a simple, dumb song. Mm-hmm. But just like, if you actually look at the lyrics, they are so simple. Just like, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. It's just like, it's very simple bullshit. But it's, in, it's it has, like, I think the dumb charm that this movie works at its best as where it's just like, Oh, there's a fun, infectious, dumb, but sincere charm that's going on here. Um, as opposed to the more sticky it gets, but like particularly Jackie Gleason and his son, who was barely a character, uh, the more I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. Especially the fact that they made like not only th- two sequels after this, but also apparently how directed like a series of TV movies in like the late eighties, early nineties with like a different, obviously bandit, not Burt Reynolds. I'm just like, I, how can you milk this for that much? I don't see much beyond even this movie that barely works at all. Well, I think, you know, because it's obvious anything that is at all successful, it will be run into the fucking ground. Yeah, particularly a movie that made $126 million in 1977, somehow surviving against Star Wars. Yeah, right. It's one that is firmly, as you mentioned, dated in like 1977 and doesn't have a lot to like a modern culture beyond like an interesting time capsule kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's, those sound like pretty good final thoughts. Yes. But Adam, speaking of yeah. time capsules and movies that could only happen in this particular time and place, we got to get to PD Wheatstra. Yeah. I'm PD Wheatstra. The devil's son-in-law. Rudy Ray Moore is Petey Weedstraw. I have a proposition to offer you, Petey. Are you willing to listen? But what do you want from me now? A son. You got to be sick. Don't give me that supernatural shit. That dolomite, man. Rudy Ray Moore is back funnier than ever in the new movie, Petey Weedstraw. Yes, tell your boss I'm still alive and I'm mad as a honey than a bumblebee eyes. Don't brother me no business for a son of a Straw. Rated R. So Petey Wheatstraw uh, came out uh, in uh, November. Uh, 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 um, Petey Wheatstraw, oh. semicolon, the devil's son-in-law. The devil's son-in-law. I'm sorry. Yes, that is its full Christian name or a satanic name, I guess, in right. this case. Whatever. Sure. Yes. Uh, but one of um, four star vehicles that starred Mr. Rudy Raymore, who we've talked about tentatively, like about a year ago, we did an Eddie Murphy episode. We talked about Dolomite is my name, which if you have not seen that movie, uh, go on Netflix. It's great. It's such a great it's movie. We both great. love it. Yeah, yeah we both great. love it so much. But that's a movie about Rudy Ray Moore, who was this guy that was like a comedian who like couldn't really like break out. But he decided like you know I'm going to release a comedy album on my own. That's just a lot of him like making very dirty jokes 
and just being very salacious and sexual in a way most comedians weren't at that time. And so then he made a movie in 1975, Dolomite, which was surprisingly successful, kind of hit the independent circuit and did pretty well. Kind of played to the same audience of, like, obviously black exploitation, underserved audience at that time. Kind of feels like an early example of what would later happen with, like, a Tyler Perry. In terms of, Rudy Ray Moore found his audience and he really played to them for however long he was able to do these movies. So he did Dolomite in, like, 75, and then I believe in, like, 76 was The Human Tornado, the sequel to that movie. And then P.D. Wheatstra in 1977. And Adam, I'm the one that introduced you to this movie. Before we were doing Dolomite is My Name, I realized I hadn't seen these movies before. The Those three, and then also the one that would follow after this Disco Godfather. And I'd yep. always heard about these weird movies, and I decided to watch them myself. And then around the time we started doing movie nights, I was like, Adam, you have to fucking watch these things. And you did... With me, and um, and uh, what, what do you think particularly of P.D. Wheatstraw? Well, I will say, first of all, P.D. Wheatstraw is my favorite of the four Rudy Ray Moore movies. I think it's absolutely batshit bonkers crazy, but in the best way possible. Um, I absolutely love this movie. It is a terrible, terrible film. <laughs> it's... It is ridiculous. Should you maybe try and do a plot synopsis? All right. All right. I will try. Petey Wheatstraw is a comedian, much like Rudy Ray Moore in real life, who also knows Kung Fu, much like Rudy Ray Moore wanted to do in, in real life. And uh, he's gunned down by rival comedians. And uh, he, for some reason, ends up in hell. And uh, Lou Cypher because there, for some reason, is a space on his business card, which is addressed. I love that. Yeah, they say it's a misprint. <laughs> yeah, right. He, instead of just calling Lou Cypher, he's like, it's a misprint. It's Lucifer. And you're like, what the fuck? So Lucifer get, makes him a deal. He can let him return back to life to sort of get revenge on those who wronged him if he promises to marry his daughter and become sort of like the new ruler of hell, because Lucifer is just tired. Well, no, and more importantly, he wants him to produce an offspring, basically create the Antichrist, which is weird. Like, you figured his daughter would be the Antichrist, but I guess not. No, yeah, I guess not. So he sends uh, Peter Wheatstraw back up with his cane that has all of the powers of the devil in it, and uh, sort of insanity ensues from there. I mean, that's a pretty accurate plot description for what plot is constituted. That's the best I could do. Right. Though you are, you did also skip over the earlier part of this movie. One is introduced with Ray Moore on a stage, introducing himself as P.D. Wheatstraw. And the whole shtick with Ray Moore is that he would rhyme everything. He was sort of considered uh, like a, a godfather of rap, like Soup Dog has said as much like he was hugely influenced by Rudy Ray Moore's albums and stuff, where he would just have these nonsensical rhymes. Like, to illustrate this, I have, this is an excerpt from the opening bit of this movie, uh, where Petey Wheatstraw is introducing himself to an audience on a stage. And he says, quote, um, I took today and brought back yesterday, took the 4th of July and put it in June, and make leap year jump over the moon. What? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And then, he ta- and then, like, in the same thing, he talks about, you know, how he was born on a horrible storm. You know, and blah, blah, blah. And then it gets to a flashback of his birthing scene, which we, we okay. So just set the pace. 
his father runs out to find this doctor to bring him in and, and help birth birth him out. And it's obviously they're, you know, sort of impoverished. They live in this little sort of shack by the water and blah, blah, blah. So the doctor comes in and the, the mom has got a giant belly. Finally, he gets the baby out. But as he's trying to get the baby out, he's like, oh, he bit me. <laughs> he gets him out. And it's like an eight-year-old kid. And he beats the shit out of the doctor. <laughs> no, no doctor's going to try and whoop on me. And then he yep, beats yep, the shit, beats the shit out of the doctor. And then goes after his dad. It's about to whoop his ass, too. And so then, you know, again, and I'm not trying to do a play-by-play, but just so people understand how ridiculous this is. Then he sort of gets beat up by a bunch of other kids and an old man teaches him Kung Fu. And that's the opening of the movie during the credits. It's this kid and this old man doing Kung Fu. Him being trained in the ways of Kung Fu said to the P.D. Wheatstraw song, which is yep. amazing. Glorious. It's glorious. It's, it's generally a great song. It's yeah, it's awesome. Such, it, it's got like that 70s perfect like funky music. Like all the yep. music you hear in like parodies of 70s era movies is like mm-hmm. all here. It's oh, so yeah. good. <laughs> and then the whole montage of him become learning Kung Fu ends with the kid going, I don't want to do this. I want to be a comedian. He's like, you know, I want to go on stage and make people laugh. And the sensei is like, like a comedian? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. The kid doesn't even know what it is. <laughs> that's right. What do they call them? Joke tellers? Who yeah. stand upright? A Joey, a Joey Jokerton. Um, <laughs> if you, but also, you forgot another <laughs> crucial detail that has a weird recurring theme in this movie. When, when he is born, before he even comes out, the doctor pulls out a watermelon from his mother? Like oh, a full yeah, watermelon. And then there's a recurring thing where, like, during the training montage, he slices up watermelons. And yeah. people are seeing just eating huge slices of watermelon on the street. Yeah. There's even, a bomb that gets thrown oh, at a truck of watermelons. The amazing bomb with a clearly, like, paper clock timer. Yep. It's so good. But, but, yeah, so, like, this movie, I think we should probably address the fact that this is trying to be a comedy. Like, it's very much a bad movie, but also... It is intentionally trying to be a comedy at points. And that's what I find so fascinating is oftentimes we've talked about this on the show that, like, usually a bad comedy is the worst kind of movie to watch. Because it's just, like, unbearable and none of the laughs work and you can't make laughs out of it. It's really terrible. But in the case of Peter Wheatstraw, it's a weird thing where, like, sometimes it's very intentionally funny. And then when it's not actually intentionally funny, it's so beautifully unintentionally funny. I think the parts where they're not trying to be funny are funnier. You know, let's be honest here. None of the jokes in this really land. A, they're not, they're so old. And B, it's not written for, you know, 30-year-old white men. This movie is not for us. It was never made for us. Well, right. That's very true. But also, it's a thing of, like, there's certain bits as well that don't age as well. Like, the weakest parts of this movie are when they were were very misogynistic jokes and then very, like, fat-phobic jokes in particular. Oh, there's a lot of those. There there is a lot of that. But I think what's interesting is it's not so much, like, the jokes that are funny as much as Rudy Mary Moore when he delivers them. There's so oh. there's this weird bluntness. Like I love there's a point where he insults a woman like in the crowd and everyone laughs. And then the one guy's like, "Hey, don't you insult my woman like that?" And he just says, "Shut up, shut your ass up." Yeah, it's just so blunt. I think that yep. like he has a very fascinating delivery that I think is very much intentionally trying to make us laugh, but also it's just so abrupt and unique. I mean, you might be right, but I also think it's also the fact that he's a terrible actor. Yes. He's, he's he's awful and one thing i wanted to do bring up about the sort of the the uh fat jokes and stuff like that in this 
the reason they don't really bother me when it comes from Rudy Ray Morris, because he was a heavier guy and he yes. knew he was a heavier guy. And he, he always tried to portray himself like he was sort of in great shape and muscled, but he knew he wasn't. So it never really bothered me for some reason. Right. I think the, uh, the best version of that is there's a bit where there's a huge montage set to actually another great song, the Ghetto Street USA, which is every song, a genuinely every good song. song right. Yeah. Uh, but um, there's a bit where there's just a lady who's on her lawn in her chair and she's like yes. shaking her ass and she's like a larger woman. And he, there's a weird embrace of just like, oh, isn't it like fun that she's being this charming? It feels like a captured moment almost. Like she wasn't mm-hmm. like initially going to be in the movie. And then Rudy Moore uses his magic cane. All of a sudden she's skinny. And it's just yeah. funny, like the jump cut that's like bewitched bullshit. We're just like, oh, look, I'm in the heavy baggy glows. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's also one thing too I want to bring up. That montage does a really good one. Uh, there's a lot of great moments, but anytime Rudy Ray Moore uh, is told to react with his face yes. is some is pure comedy gold because it is so over the top, dude. There's the whole thing that's like skipping down the street, basically, yep. just like, yeah, I got Satan magic and I got a shit ton of money and I'm helping my helping community. out the ghetto. Yep, yep. Right. Yes. And all of a sudden, and then he just like throws his money in the air and looks directly at the camera, just like with this giant, like his mouth is so open wide, it's huge. <laughs> or like when he gets scared, it's like, Aah! and it literally looks like he's got like an elastic face. His mouth goes down and out to the right. It is so ridiculous. Which I think is part of his actual comedic persona. I think like he's very much intentionally trying to have like silly over the top reactions. I would hope, <laughs> but that's the thing about this movie I, that to me this and I I would say this and Disco Godfather are my favorite too. It's the crazy shit that is happening throughout the entire film. It, I mean, it's nonstop, just weird what the fuckness that's happening, but. Everybody around Rudy Ray Moore, and even Rudy Ray Moore at some points, is trying to play it so straight. Like, especially like his his buddies and stuff, who also, of course, all know Kung Fu and stuff. The majority of the time, they're playing it super straight. And it's just the craziest shit is happening. It, it is so funny to me. But particularly any of the times where Rudy Moore actually does Kung Fu, and it's very clearly Jimmy Lynch, who's one of his buddies, subbing in for him. And it's such a terrible, like, so obvious the editing mm-hmm. is so bad. From, mm-hmm. like, Jimmy Lynch, who's, like, kind of also bigger, but, like, clearly and much more stuff than Rudy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he's burly as opposed to Rudy, who is not burly. <laughs> and I love that, like, he, you know, when he's got the cane and he's trying to keep away the devil's henchmen and he's doing the kung fu in quotes sort of hand gestures behind the cane and the devil how oh, is he doing this <laughs> well there's also just a lot of like him moving his head back and forth like fwa, 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 fwa. <laughs> yeah he's got oh, yeah. the cane out in front of him it's the best <laughs> It's, it's so insane, yeah. I agree with you, this is the best of those four. And I think uh-huh. it's because those other movies have, I think, amazing moments. I think, like, the Human Tornado and Disco Godfather have, like, bizarre set pieces that are insane, but linking material that feels a lot longer. Dolomite is even worse about that. The first movie is just very much, like, it's, like, very boring, except for random moments that are fun and fascinating. Uh, but with P.D. Wheatstraw, it is just a stream of consciousness, like, nope, silly thing, weird thing, insane thing, just happening over and over again. And this one flies by, by contrast, smoking the bint. This is one of those where it's like, if you want something crazy to watch with your friends that you have never seen, or maybe a lot of people probably never even heard of, I hope we didn't ruin it for you, but this is one of those movies where 
if if you have seen it, you're trying to get somebody to watch it, let them go in completely blind. That's how I went in. And I came away just in love with this movie and with this guy, with this entity that is Rudy Ray Moore. You know, the Eddie Murphy biopic really helped that, but it's not the, the man himself. Watching the man himself in these movies, you, you're just, I was so enamored by him and just sort of in love with the guy as just how preposterous he was willing to let himself be. And it just, it works on so many levels. Like I said, this one, Disco Godfather, especially with the musical breaks with him and the ending is just, Oh, the ending is amazing. It's pure gold. Like (laughs) it's a terrible film. As far as filmmaking, it looks like crap. The edits are really bad. The sort of sound is all over the place. It's, it's just really lousy. What it has going for it. One is a badass soundtrack. And two, just a real feeling of earnesty behind it. Like they're really trying to make something here. Yeah, and it comes off just, sure. yeah, it's so charming at its core and sort of has so much heart behind it that, you know, I'd find, I can't believe anybody who would watch this and not at least get a smile on their face at just that level alone. It is just such a fun, fucking weird, violent, filthy movie. Right, or at the very least, like, even if you don't have, like, sort of that infectious charm to it, like us, like, I think you would at least be mouth agape at just, like, what is happening? What the fuck is this? What right. is this movie? Yeah, right. it's not boring. Just, it's never boring. No, it is never boring. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And I th- it's it's because, just like I said, like, this, so many bizarre things of just, like you mentioned, the, the big impetus for, like, the conflict that happens is, like, a couple comedians just like, oh, my God, P.D. Wheatstraw's playing at this club at the same time as the opening of our club will completely fall apart. will never work. We have to do something. Oh, let's murder him. Let's <laughs> murder him at a funeral. Like after, funeral. after 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 well, the funeral was for this young boy who is the brother of one of like the people yep. in fucking PD's entourage and yep. the sequence where he accidentally gets killed is the best version of what you see in so many of these bad movies is just like a bad death scene it's so yep. fucking great we're just like oh man you know you, you want to be good in school right because if you're good in school then you can be a basketball star like kareem kareem didn't skip school it's like you know what you're right i'm not gonna skip school again and then a conflict happens and that kid gets shot and she's like uh, i won't skip school <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you must go on. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, so that that's that's gonna pose my question to you. Uh, you know, while while we're still on the movie, what is your favorite like sort of just bananas? What the fuck is going on? Moment of this movie. Um, I mean, for me, oh, you know what? I think it's got to be the sequence that occurs at the club when the opening happens, which is one of the more insane examples of like the mixture of the, like the bad filmmaking, but also the intentional attempts at comedy are just so bizarre where it's like one, they have a band playing and the band plays the same three fucking notes at this club. It's just a song goes like for like five minutes as scenes are going on. And then like the two guys, it's Leroy and Skillet are the competing comedians who go up there and PD is in the audience in a brilliant disguise of like a different suit. Anyone would recognize with the worst Jamaican accent. Oh, the worst! Yes, Jamaican (laughs) accent. And he gets in and like uses his magic to initially just like oh have them say horrible, disparaging things about the white 
rich guy who funded Leroy and Skillet's club to ruin them financially. And he's like, and now I will fix them eternally. And he creates like a snowstorm or something. Yep. Yep. And it's the worst looking snowstorm. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> Mine, which, which I know you like as well, uh, cause we've talked about it, but sort of the ultimate plot to get out of the contract, the ultimate scheme. Oh, to fool the devil. Is the that- masterful Daniel Webster-esque. Right. Well, the idea is to find a wino, because that's how they refer to it, a wino, and dope him up. So, because they tell the devil, on my wedding day, I meditate, so don't try to talk to me. The devil's like, okay, yeah, whatever, I'll go with it. Seems <laughs> like, yeah, all right, that's cool. Uh, but it's like, so they get this, they get the idea, but but Petey, in, a, in just a brilliant sort of moment, turns to his friend, is like, hey, man, you like making shit. <laughs> make a mask that looks just like me. So then they show the guy sculpting the mask. And it is the worst looking thing. I, I mean, possibly ever. It barely looks like a human. It's, it's, it's just like, it's on a wood husk for one. Thing. Yes. It's just like yeah. hundred percent. And, and, and it, it looks nothing like Rudy. No, all. it's a completely different skin tone. The hair is all just awful. And he's like, man, that looks just like me. And then they put it on the wino and then it's just, Rudy Ray Moore playing a second part. <laughs> it's so fucking and funny. Particularly the bit where like they first introduce him and they pull back and a genuinely funny bit. His tongue is like sticking out and they like poke it back in. Yep. Yep. Because they dope him up. Yes, they dope him up. <laughs> it's so ridiculous, dude. It's so funny. That and of course, the ultimate ending where he gets into the devil's car instead of his friend's car. <laughs> it's so funny. It's, it's 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 kind of perfect. It's, the the final shot being him screaming is just, it's one of the great final shots in cinematic history. <laughs> it's yes. it's so perfect. Yeah, and I think it's just because it's like we mentioned, like there's a weird charm to the fact that Ruri Moore cannot act very well, but he knows at least that he can make people laugh. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. Like in the Dolomite is my name biopic, there's a great moment where someone addresses Rudy Ramore about like, hey, are they laughing intentionally? He's just like, well, yeah, it's comedy. It's like, but I don't know if they're laughing at all the jokes. Just like, well, you know, they're laughing. That's what matters. That's exactly the spirit this movie has. We're just yep. like, look, we're going to do some intentional jokes for you, and we're also going to try and be very sincere, which might make you laugh because it's very poorly put together. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It's still going to work. A laugh is a laugh. Exactly. And he really embraces that. And there's just a weird confidence about Rudy Moore that I love, where mm-hmm. he just goes up and he's like, yeah, I'm the coolest motherfucker in this movie. Clearly. I am P.D. Wheatstra. I am the coolest man you've ever seen in the oh, movie. I am, you know fi- I am fooling the devil. <laughs> You know what, for anybody who might have who's never seen a Rudy Ray Moore thing, but if you've seen Black Dynamite, uh, yes. his friend Bullhorn is Rudy Ray Moore, 100%. The way he talks, the way he rhymes, the look of him, the bad kung fu, everything. That, that's clearly where they got Bullhorn from. Yeah, they're almost so, like direct quotes, I think, from yeah, there is Rudy Ray yep. stuff, right, that mm-hmm. he spouts at a certain point. Yeah, he's just, he's another person where, like, kind of like Smoking and the Bandit, he also feels like someone where, I made the, like, Tyler Perry comparison, but it also feels so overtly different that just, like, that was a guy who might have been an influence of Tyler Perry, as opposed to yep. Rudy Moore could only exist in, like, the mid to late 70s. Oh, a thousand just percent. being this outrageous and weird and bizarre could get you a mild cult acclaim at that point. 
to make yep. you like make for one movie to the next. It really did not work after Disco Godfather because like I know he appeared in I think there was a movie called The Monkey Hustle starring Yafet yeah. Toto where yeah. he's like a secondary character who pops in. But at the same time, like I couldn't really see Rudy Moore showing up in anything that would be like a popular comedy in like the eighties. No, there's no way. Unless you made him just, like, Eddie Murphy's weird uncle and like, coming to America or something. Yeah, maybe then, or had him as one of the guys at the barbershop or something like that. Like, that maybe could have worked. Maybe. But, um, yeah, no, he was definitely a man of this era. Uh, you want to talk about, you know, the proverbial lightning in a bottle. That's what Rudy Ray Moore had. Right. And even then, it wasn't, like, a huge thing. Like, I remember I showed Dolomite my name to my dad, and he was just like, I have no idea who the fuck this person is. And he was, like, around in the 70s. Sure. He just had no idea, because it was, like, a smaller cult figure who appealed especially to an audience that was underserved at that point. Right, but like you said, he was still successful enough to go to make four movies. You know, right. I mean, that's that's something. You know, and his albums did well enough and things like that. Like, he did all right, man. If, a, I, I've said a lot about the movie. I love it, obviously, but I also want to say, uh, Rudy Ray Moore is going back to Black Dynamite. Is responsible for probably the funniest line in Black Dynamite because it's the same line in Disco Godfather. Where is Bucky, and what has he had? <laughs> uh, look, at some point we're gonna have a bit of distance, but I want to cover at least that one and also Human yes. Tornado on the show. At Absolutely, because even like, we haven't said a lot about Human Tornado, but a lot of the funny moments you see filmed within Dolomite is my name are from the human tornado, mm-hmm. which is like, not like I said, as consistent, but like, especially the opening of human tornado is one of my favorite movie openings in general. It's fantastic. It's insane. <laughs> it's one of the most insane, like opening 10 minutes of movie I've ever fucking seen. Um, but, but yeah, I think that's the thing is like, he's so unique a voice. I think it could something that only could be contained in a limited amount of movies as well. Like, I don't think like, imagine what like the early, like 1981 movie Rudy Ray would have made. The film would have combusted before it got to a theater because it just couldn't contain whatever this energy was from the 70s. Couldn't survive past, like, December 31st, 1979. <laughs> uh-huh. I think that's incredibly accurate. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, Adam, any final thoughts about Petey Wheatstraw, though, before we head on out of here into uh, our recurring segment? Uh, like I said, I, I love the movie. This is pre- This is my favorite bad pick that we've done period so so wait uh, very important because we've talked about this anytime we cover like a sort of like so bad it's good movie you're saying this beats like a miami connection yes <gasps> yeah yes. this is my this is my ultimate favorite even faithful findings yep i love this movie more than anything i i you know i've I watched it the first time with you and then i rewatched it two nights last night i think even and i i was just glued to the screen and i was just laughing my ass off shaking my head in disbelief even though i knew the whole movie you know it's just it's there's such a level of charm to this film and to the man himself that really endear it to me even more uh i just think this is a fucking insane uh believe it or not folks horror comedy uh from the 70s with an all-black cast it it is absolutely just a perfect little nugget of a time capsule uh especially of a movie that you know i'd argue you could remake a Smokey and the bandit type movie nowadays you will never see Petey Wheatstraw. i i don't know Smokey and the bandit does not feel like there's like you can really transfer that to a modern era but like cb radios what what's the modern equivalent just like cell phones it's smoking in the whatsapp <laughs> you could do something with that type of ip uh it, it's just with this there's there's no way this movie is exactly from 1977 it exactly belongs to that time and it is absolutely uh just i in my opinion basically a perfect film 
don't I mean, I feel like this was an interesting, appropriate double feature for 77, because I personally feel like, even with Smoking the Bandit, these are two movies that have no, like, cultural, like, sort of equivalent to this point, really, for me. Like, Smoking the Bandit, the closest you kind of get is something like a Fast and Furious, maybe, because it's all, like, dumb car stuff and weird sincerity, but also, it kind of has, like, speaking of Fast and Furious, that sincereness that kind of comes from, like, a Rudy Raymore, where, like, Vin Diesel has a similar appeal to me, where, like, I don't think that dude is as aware of, like, what the joke is necessarily at hand, but he's just very sincere, and so it makes me earnestly watch those dumb Fast and Furious movies because it's just, he is such a unique presence that could have only come from, in that case, like the late 90s, early 2000s. With like Rudy Ray Moore, it's another thing where it's just like, he could only have been successful at this point, and he produced like some very fun, watchable, bad movies. And I think this one is the crowning achievement because it's just weird stream of consciousness. Like, we can even talk about this, my, another great scene in this movie with like the carjacking. That involves people literally like stealing the seats and wheels from the cars and Rudy Moore chasing after them. And like a woman like is in the middle of the path as these guys are walking on the sidewalk at the entire back seat. And she's like, oh no, no, I, I can't go left to right. Oh no. <laughs> it's like inside the seat. It's shit like that. Like, that's insane. That's so weird. That's very funny on an intentional level, but also so poorly produced on an unintentionally bad way that it's just masterful. It is definitely one like Adam mentioned. I'd recommend you watch with friends and try to at least go in knowing not a lot. But even then, as much as we've said about this movie, there are details we couldn't possibly mention. There is so much. And even like you mentioned, I've watched this movie several times. And each time I notice like another weird, dumb detail. The little devil horns that are just spray-painted earplugs. <laughs> like, near the end of the movie. Just spectacular weird shit like that. That just could only come from, like, once again, Ray Moore and his... A team of you know bizarre low budget filmmakers making this movie that I, I think is one of the best bad movies we definitely covered on the show. It would be on like the Mount Rushmore of those, or Mount Rushmore is maybe a bit. There's there's so many of them. I would argue it's like the Hall of Presidents. We have a Hall of Presidents of bad movies that we just like recommend to people from this show at this point. Yeah, I think that's yeah. Fair. Yeah, I think there's a solid, like, 46 of them. <laughs> At this point, we've done this show for so long. Uh, but, yes, um, great movie. Would recommend everybody out there. And even as, like, I also knew a lot more about this movie before I went into it, there's a treasure trove of things that to discover in P.D. Wheatstraw, semicolon, The Devil's Son-in-Law. But now, Adam, it's time for our weekly segment where uh, every week, while talking about a double feature of one that's a good one that's a bad, we decide like to recommend and not recommend a couple titles related to the topic in question. So uh, it's called The Double Redo, and uh, I have two good and two bad movies to recommend and not recommend, and you have the same, uh, based around the year 1977 in film. So I'll go ahead and start with mine here. Um, for my good... I have, uh, first, um, a movie from a filmmaker we've talked about. I think you've recommended it previously on the show, but I just want to echo the recommendation you had of uh, Martin from Mr. George A. Romero, which is the movie that he did, um, I believe, like right before Dawn of the Dead. And it's a little fascinating character study about the titular Martin, who is this lonely, very odd outcast of a man that uh, has moved in with like one of his relatives in Pittsburgh, and uh, he thinks he's a vampire, he talks about it a lot, but in a way that almost feels more like he's got some weird psychotic break 
So it could be that he's a vampire, or more likely he's just some weird serial killer. It's a fascinating little low-budget, dirty, grimy movie that especially, you know, it, some might compare it to like a taxi driver, as opposed to grimy New York in that movie. Grimy Pittsburgh has its own appeal because it feels like a town that's desolate, that has like no real economy to it at this particular point in history. And it's just so fascinating to see this guy who feels lost in a town that feels kind of lost at the same time. And it's it's a really underrated movie. I think one of his best that's not like, you know, the big zombie trilogy that he made um, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Like, in between that, he made a lot of interesting, fascinating movies. And Martin is one of the more underseen ones I'd recommend to people. And then uh, the other one I have is one I only saw recently in sort of research for this show. But I find fascinating because... It's very much of its time, but also I think it has a little progression point that I find interesting as well. I have Slapshot, which is a hockey comedy movie that stars Paul Newman as this guy who is uh, part of uh, this hockey team that is like on the, the outskirts it's so like poorly performed they haven't won it that many games over the last several years and it seems like they're going to be sold off and basically they end up getting some new recruits in these like three brothers called the Hanson brothers who are these like very young violent weirdos that just cause chaos on the rink but also that drives more attendance to their games. So Paul Newman, who's like a guy who's on his last legs, kind of about to, you know, retire, who's also the coach, is like, you know what? That's what we're going to do. We're going to psych people out and do like horrible, violent shit on the hockey rink. And then we're going to get a shit ton of people to watch us. And I think it is a fascinating job of examining a lot of like masculinity where it has some unfortunate language I don't recommend, especially it's, it's inherently a homophobic movie in a lot of ways. But what's fascinating is it's actually written by a woman. Uh, Nancy Dowd is the name of the screenwriter, and it was directed by George Roy Hill, who had directed like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and a few other things uh, that Paul Newman had been in. And I think that combination creates a fascinating movie, especially where the um, relationships that are displayed with like Paul Newman and his wife, who's about to become his ex-wife, and then also one of the other guys, Braden, on the team, who is like very much against the violence that's going on, is having an outskirts thing with his wife who um, Paul Newman kind of tries to, like, you know, basically hang around with to get Braden to be, like, jealous and angry so he'll be violent on the hockey rink. And those two characters, the two wives, are actually very well-rounded characters and have a lot more dimension to them than especially a lot of love interests at that time. So on some levels, I think it's very much of its time and very dated, but also very progressive for the moment to where I don't think it's a great movie, but I think it's a really fascinating sort of, like, snapshot, if you will, of, like, that particular era in a way that, like, I, I think is, like, a fascinating watch, and I would recommend to people with the asterisk, like, there's going to be some offensive stuff, but at the same time, it also has a lot of progressive things I didn't really expect. It's an interesting discovery, I would say. Um, and then my two bad, I have uh, one from Disney, who at this point, this has been, like, a decade or so when this movie I'm about to display came out, since Walt Disney passed away. They were like, oh, God, what are we going to do since Walt's died? How are we going to, like, go on? with, like, the company and what it does. And so uh, they, one of the various projects they decided to do where they felt like, well, Walt probably would have wanted something like this, is Pete's Dragon, the original uh, 1977 film that uh, is about a young boy who sees a dragon that no one else sees, and the dragon is portrayed in, like, traditional Disney animation while everything else is live action. And um, this is a movie that I hadn't seen until right before the remake came out that David Lowry made, 
And um, I was astonished has any kind of like nostalgic remembrance for people of that era because it is so fucking dull. It's long. It's boring. As someone who likes musicals, it has some of the worst musical numbers in Disney history. It has some very bad performances from, like, Mickey Rooney plays this, like, drunken lighthouse keeper dude who is, like, such a bad comedic relief. And the animation on on the dragon, the titular dragon, is interesting, but he only appears so often, and it's such a dull affair. And it makes me really respect for the remake, which is the one Disney remake that didn't really do that well, unfortunately, because it's the one I would say is actually good and improves on its lesser original movie, the way that Disney should be doing these remakes. Uh, because, uh, yeah, this original, very bad. And uh, the other bad one is The Sentinel, which is a 1977 film that's basically about um, this woman moves into an apartment, where um, it's implied that there's some sort of evil entity that lives there, and she like meets her neighbors who might may or may not be on the level and have maybe some kind of sinister element to them. And this movie has an astonishing cast, because uh, like the 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 main woman is uh, played by Christina Raines, who isn't that well known, but her boyfriend is Chris Sarandon. Um, she's a, a model, and her photographer is a young Jeff Goldblum, very poorly dubbed in a weird way, because it doesn't sound anything like Jeff Goldblum. Uh, Eli Wallach is one of the investigators. Uh, Christopher Walken is his younger partner. Burgess Meredith is, like, the main guy who lives in the apartment who has, like, cats. Uh, Beverly D'Angelo is, like, part of a lesbian couple, and she has, like, a phantom orgasm. It's such a weird, bizarre movie that has all these elements that would sound interesting, but it's just so laboriously paced, and so just, like, endless, and is not a movie that its cast fondly remembers to the point where, um, shout out to my late friend Santos Allen Jr., who I used to do a podcast with, described trying to interview Chris Sarandon, immediately bringing up this movie, and Chris Sarandon being like, oh, what the fuck are you talking about? That's a terrible movie. Why are you bringing this up to me? I fucking hate that movie. Why would you ever bring that up? It's so fucking bad. Apparently just ruined that interview. <laughs> so you can tell, uh, not beloved by anybody uh, who really watched or uh, was even in the film. I have seen The Sentinel. I do not like The Sentinel. I am right along with you on pretty much every way you described it. But there are definitely fans of that movie, uh, which is odd to me because, I, I mean, it's a cool idea, but it's just, it's executed so poorly. Pete's Dragon, let's put it this way. I rewatched all the Disney movies I've seen as a kid, you know, Robin Hood and Sword in the Stone and all those ones from around that era. I've only seen the P-Dragon the one time when I was a child. I have not rewatched it at all. So clearly it left zero impression on me. But I will say, I thought the remake was actually pretty charming and cute. And yeah, I've talked about Martin. Martin fucking owns it's such a good movie. It is such a cool take on sort of the idea of the vampire mythology and sort of deconstructing it at the same time. Very, very fun movie. Well, fun might not be the right word. The fun romp. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but Slapshot, yeah, I, I like Slapshot. I, I, it is very dated, but there is a lot of fun and heart in Slapshot. Uh, the, and the Hanson brothers are just so fun to watch. Um, they're I mean, just maniacs. But yeah, I, I really like Slapshot quite a bit. And also, uh, you know, that's the reason why it's regarded as still one of the best sports comedies of all time. Uh, okay, and quickly to get on to my good, I'll be totally transparent. My good and bad both include a movie that we have covered on the show, but they fit because uh, they both fit very well in the good and bad category. And also, it's been a very long time since we covered either of them. Either of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially the first one. Uh, for my good, I have 1977's animated Ralph Baschke film, Wizards. Um, if you've never seen Wizards, 
it is this weird sort of post-apocalyptic yet fantasy yet like sort of acid fueled just crazy movie and but it's so fucking good so fun great characters i i just i think wizards is one of those sort of underseen gems that a lot of people who know know but this movie could have such a bigger audience um i think it's absolutely great and, and one of bashki's best if not his best and then uh for my other one i have uh which always slides in and out of the first spot of my greatest horror film ever made i have the dario argento suspiria it is so atmospheric and so beautiful and so gory and so chilling and just a great score by Goblin. And it's just, it is one of those like sort of fever dream movies that by the time you're done with it, it you, you felt like you just were in a dream world. Um, and the remake also very solid, very different movie, but I, I just, I love the original so fucking much that it's, it's, it sort of hurts me to this day that you cannot find it anywhere. And if you want to get a physical copy of it, be prepared to shell out some major bucks. Um, it's a shame. It's a great, great movie. Uh, I, I had the chance to meet Udo Kier, and even though he's in Suspiria for all of 10 minutes and he's dubbed, I still had him sign a Suspiria poster. Um, I just, I, it's one of the, for me, the greatest achievements in horror filmmaking still to this day. And, uh, for my bad, briefly, um, I have Orca, uh, which we covered on the show, terrible jaws sort of rip, just a lousy fucking movie. It's boring the effects don't really work it's a just a it's just a stupid ass and then also i have the incredible melting man really good practical effects for the time in this one i really like the effects i don't even mind the story it's just carried off so sci-fi schlocky that it's laughable uh which is unfortunate i think that's why it ends up on sort of the bad side for me because there is a lot of potential there um i just don't know that the capabilities were there yet to really pull it off expertly i don't know if it's the acting or just the general way it's filmed but something about it just feels like a lot of lost potential uh yeah i have technically seen all of your movies i will say with incredible melting man it's the asterisk of i've seen the episode of mystery science theater where they cover the incredible melting man um, and I remember, yeah, the effects looked really good. I believe it's an early Rick Baker design as well with the Incredible Melting yeah. Man. Yep. Right, yep. yeah. And, and when you can see it, it's pretty great, but the problem is it's a low-budget movie where there's a lot of darkness, so you can kind of barely make it out at points because of how it's shot. Yeah, it's, it's one of those movies where, aside from that great look of the Melting Man, it's kind of dull. Yeah, I mean, I love Suspiria. I think that's a phenomenal movie. That is, it's like you mentioned, so hard to find, and it's it's one of the few movies where like dream logic is often used as a way to kind of like explain away certain movies. And I think it kind of is like it, it just depends on how like interesting the movie is to how much dream logic works for me. Uh, Suspiria is one of the great examples of it working perfectly because it just feels like you're living a fucking nightmare. The way that it's so colorful but contrasted by how gory and awful it is at the same time, and it's it is a shame. I totally agree that it's like just not that commercially available because I'm guessing rights issues. Just the insane, weird release thing that kind I mean, of it, like it has to be because every other Argento movie you can find almost anywhere. Yeah, I mean, everyone wants Dracula 3D. <laughs> um, but the other two are ones we have covered for the show uh, very early in our history, um, and they're both really like ones that stick out to me. With like Wizards, it's such an interesting kind of relic of what 
alt animation was at the time when Disney, as we mentioned with Peach Dragon, was not at its highest point. And it has like a lot of interesting like designs and decisions that I think are incredible. And Bashki is one of the like true auteurs of animation in a way where every one of his movies feels distinctively his to some degree. Um, and then with uh, Orca, I contended it then, I still contend it now, is one of the worst films I've ever seen. But in a way that I can at least say has kind of like a studio train wreck quality to it. of just like, I can't believe they're deciding on all these terrible decisions from like the Orca effects to like some of the set pieces that like, there's a whole sequence where someone gets bitten on the leg on their boathouse and such a thing of like, why the fuck doesn't everyone just move like 10 feet inland <laughs> and avoid the Orca whale? This I mean, that's very... literally all it would take. <laughs> all it would say, <laughs> get your houses off fucking stilts that are in the water and you're done. Yeah, <laughs> but just everyone in this coastal town lives on the fucking actual coast specifically. A lot of weird people in the cast, like Richard Harris and Charlotte Rampling, and it's it's a nut so weird sort of like relic of like you mentioned, like trying to replicate the success of Jaws and doing a very bad job at it. Um, you know, maybe arguably worse than many of the sequels to Jaws, I would say, and that includes like a Jaws 3D, which is some of like the bottom of the barrel bullshit. For sure on that. Uh, but yeah, those are all interesting choices. So let's go ahead and repeat our choices just so everyone is, um, you know, gets them in case you were curious to watch some of them uh, or avoid them. Um, I have my two choices for Martin and Slapshot. And then my two bad were Peach Dragon and the Sentinel. And my two good were Wizards and Suspiria. My two bad were the Incredible Melting Man and Orca. Yes, uh, and uh, we recommend all of you out there uh, go ahead and submit your choices for this uh, a double redo as well. Uh, if you have any for like 1977 or any of the other previous ones we've done, please submit them to uh, our various uh, socials and such. We'll go ahead and tell you about in just a moment and stick around for the end of the show where we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode. Um, so, uh, we want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water for all of his great stuff, especially on Twitter. You'll find a link tree where you can find his Instagram and stuff like that for all the amazing artwork. And thanks, of course, to our loyal Patreon subscribers over at patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get exclusive content like polls where you get to vote for movies we cover and uh, even, you know, bonus episodes. Like we do a show called On the Edge of Relevance, where we cover uh, modern releases. And around, you know, this time, you'll be able to hear our glorious episode all about uh, the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre that would have just dropped on Netflix which, you know, Adam and I are so anticipating. We haven't seen it yet. It hasn't been released at the time that we're recording, but oh, man. Oh, yeah, I'm fucking revved up for it. Yes. So jazzed. It's so very jazzed. It's gonna fucking suck. That's, that's an in-joke for all you patrons on another recent episode on Kimmy. From yep. the edge relevance that we did. Um, and also, uh, keep in mind that we have a thing. At, if you're listening to this on the day it's released, you still have a couple days to contribute to our little March Madness uh, bracket thing where we're going to be covering the best movie sequel. And uh, 30 of the slots have been filled by myself, Adam, and our various people who are participating in that big March Madness episode that we'll be doing for the Patreon exclusively. But um, we have two slots available, and we are taking suggestions from our Edgelord patrons. We'll only be choosing two particular uh, entries, but um, you know, we, it could be your 
particular entry, we'll mention you when we do the actual episode, and you might win. Who knows? You might win and get your particular sequel choice to be the best sequel of all time, as decided by our panelists, and that makes it officially canon and completely 100% the definitive best sequel. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll go down in history. We're going to etch it on tablets. And by tablets, we mean we're going to write it on our iPads. Uh, yeah, my, my Samsung tablet, and then I'm going to bury it. Adam, don't use a chisel on that. I think it's going to break easily. <laughs> Fuck. Well, we also uh, want to encourage you all to find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, and also submit feedback to us double-edgedevilbill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, find more of myself over on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy, and also some of my writings at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and Film-Cred.com. And I'm on the Twitters and the Instagrams. At uh, Atom or Adam, that's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson, S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And for more of us, please uh, subscribe to Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms uh, to hear all our lovely recordings. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on here? And also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed. There'll be a link in the description for that, where you can listen to the hundreds of episodes we did before we joined Talk Film Society recently. If nothing else, if you can't you know, help us with the Patreon, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around to give us more uh, visibility in the algorithms. Yeah, go back and listen to that episode on Wizards or the episode on Orca. They're real fun. Those are ones that I remember quite fondly. Yes, the discussions maybe. Not maybe the audio quality or the editing quality. Probably not. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was outside for one of them. You could hear cicadas and all that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it was an interesting ambiance that you had at that point. Well, we've gotten to the end of the show here, and at the end of every show, we do our picking for the next week's episode. Each of us has two good and two bad picks. We switch up on the quality for that. Uh, so in this case, uh, Adam has the two bad choices. I have the two good choices for next week's episode. And we've assigned numbers between yeah. 1 and 10 for each of those. So uh, the other person will pick a number between 1 and 10. Whatever that's closest to gets us our good and our bad picks. Uh, though, keep in mind, we do have this thing called the Godfather Rule implemented, where uh, Adam and I, ever since May, have had this veto in our back pocket that uh, basically means that uh, when we hear one person's choice after picking number between 1 and 10, and they're like, oh, well, that's closest to blank, the other person could be like, hmm, you know, I don't really like blank. I don't ever really want to cover it. I don't have much to say about it or anything. So I'm going to say, actually, I'll take the cannoli, which thus removes that choice, but leaves us with whatever other choice the person has. Uh, we were both given these vetoes, one single veto for that, and uh, Adam has already used his. I still have mine burning a hole in my back pocket. I could use, uh, for our upcoming episode, because Adam has the two bad choices for, uh, in honor of The Batman coming out, uh, we decided, you know, we've done DC too many times, but let's devote an episode to the modern, weirdo, bizarre actor who is starring as the titular Batman, a Robert Pattinson. I see what you did there. You made it rhyme. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Smart, clever, yeah. yeah. That's really yeah. good. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. That's what brings in the listeners. Uh, but he's such an interesting actor, though. He's very worth discussing for an entire episode. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. I love that guy. I absolutely love Robert Pattinson. I've always liked Robert Pattinson. I don't even care. I'll freely admit it. I like Twilight. I like the Twilight movies. It's fine. It's a completely different take on the vampire mythology. And that's fine, because you know what? 
Vampires aren't fucking real. No, Adam, I have all this vampire makeup on every week. I am a vampire. That's just sunblock. You just can't go outside. No, actually, it's just my very pale skin. The sunblock yeah. applied. It goes even yeah. worse. Uh, but but no, I think even those movies are so fascinating and weird. I'll just say out front, I don't have any of those on my list. Of, you know, of my two good choices, I don't think yeah. you don't have any of them on your bed. But those uh, movies are so fascinating. And they produced both Kristen Stewart, who we've done an episode mm-hmm. on previously, and, and Taylor Lautner. Well, of course, yes, Taylor Lautner. We all love all the great films that Taylor Lautner has done afterward, like Abduction. And, and Skip Trace or Untraceable or something like that. I'm not sure. Um, the Adam Sandler movies he was in, right? The, the oh yeah, movies. Ridiculous Six, yeah, yeah. Right. But Pattinson and Stewart have produced such fascinating movies off of their Twilight success. We'll be uh, obviously, as I mentioned, I have the two good for this. You have the two bad. And so, mm-hmm. uh, Adam, please, for my two good choices, pick number between one and ten. We're gonna go Dubro Udo, baby. Ooh. Okay. Well, at number three, uh, I had a movie that stars Pattinson and at least one other person. I have uh, him and Willem Dafoe in The Lighthouse. I mean, there was never any doubt that was going to be one of the choices. (laughs) That's a great choice. That movie's fucking weird, man. I love it to pieces, though. Yes, for sure. We'll be talking a lot about that next time. But on the other side of things, over at number ten... I had um, sort of the first movie he did where it was like, oh, this guy is willing to do really weird, interesting shit uh, from Safdie Brothers' Good Time. Another great choice. Either way, Quinn, Quinn. Yes, but now it's time for my Kobayashi Maru no-win scenario uh, for your bad choices. And for that, uh, you know, I'm going to go on the opposite end of things. I'm going to pick number 10. All right, at number 8, I have one that I've personally never seen. I know it's very divisive. Um, it's by one of my favorite directors. It's a Cronenberg film. Uh, it's one of two collaborations they did, but I think it's the last one. Um, I have Map to the Stars. Interesting. I remember liking that quite a bit. But it is divisive. It's very divisive. That is true. That is divisive. I have the option to veto. Um, but uh, you know what? I'm not going to take the cannoli on this one as well. I keep It's like a broken record. I got to use it at some point, but that day... It's not today, Adam. Well, that day could have been uh, this day, because I also had the very emotionally manipulative and bullshit movie, uh, Remember Me. Remember that one that turned into a 9-11 movie in the last five seconds? I'm very glad I didn't take the cannoli, because I'll tell you straight up, the movie is only memorable for its twist, that it it takes place in (laughs) 9-11. Everything before that is really dumb and not that interesting and dull as, like, a fucking family drama. And then the big ending twist spoilers is that you don't know the date until the very end when he's going to work at the World Trade Center, and it turns out to be 9-11 specifically. That's the only reason to talk about that movie. It's such a dumb, stupid twist that... At the same time, it's the only memorable thing about that fucking movie, anyway. Well, you know, I've never seen it. I just know of the twist, and I know how perplexing and ridiculous everyone thought it was. So, uh, hey, if it's a dull one, I'm glad I wasn't picked. Because say what you will about Map to the Stars, even though I haven't seen it, I've heard it's nothing. It's not dull. It's very interesting. I'll be very curious to talk about that with you and whoever may else may be here next time on that. Well, Adam, it's time we finally skedaddled out of here, and we better get out of here because we might have to actually pay our debt to the devil. But as long as we have this cane, it'll be fine. Hopefully we don't break it for no reason. 
and this completely rob us of any power that we would have. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Fuck you, Christian. <laughs> <laughs>